Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. It is great to be with you this morning on the Lord's Day, in the Lord's house, among the Lord's people. If you're a guest with us, my name is Joel, and I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to invite you to just kind of reach out to us and let us know you're here. There's a couple of ways you can do that. The first is through a Connect card that you received in your program when you came into the building. If you could just fill that out, drop it in the offering plate at the end of the service, and that'll let us know you were here. Let us know what brought you in. Let us know of different ways on that card that we can pray for you, that we can serve you. Another really quick way and more technologically advanced way that you can get a hold of us is just to go ahead and pull out your phone, text the word HELLO, capital H-E-L-L-O, to the following number, 571-620-5417. You'll get a couple of prompts back just asking for a name and an email address uh, and anything else that you want to tell us through the text message. Uh, we'd love the opportunity to be able to pray with you and for you. Uh, we are very, very glad uh, that you came this morning. I'm so glad that you're here. We're actually in week two of an eight-week series entitled Building Warriors. We're talking about what it looks like to raise children. And as I talked and opened up this series last week, I brought up the fact that this isn't just for parents. This is for grandparents. This is for aunts and uncles. This is for people who work with our kids here on the campus. This is for people who are within the sphere of influence of small children or teens that have, or you're in the position of being able to raise them up for the glory of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And that pretty much uh, describes everybody in this room. But this week, I, something was brought to my attention that there's a particular group of people uh, that is really probably a part of just about any local church. And, and I want to speak to you this morning specifically just before I get started. Uh, over 27 years of ministry, I have met with multiple couples who recognize that children are a blessing and a heritage from the Lord. And the Lord, for whatever reason, chose not to bless them with children. And they're, they're filled with pain. Many times they're filled with confusion. They don't know exactly why the Lord has told them no. Um, I want to speak to you for just a moment because there are parts of Scripture that are pain points for all of us. There are things either in my life that are sinful or things that I didn't necessarily have anything to do with, but they're, they surround me and they bring pain into my life. And when Scripture presses on that point of pain, it's, it's, it can be very excruciating. So if you're one of those uh, couples, I just want to tell you that I, I recognize that pain and I thank you for being here in the midst of it. It takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of strength. Uh, to sit through this. But I also want to tell you that I'm thankful that you're here because we need you. Whatever God decides to do in your future with regard to your own children, the body of Christ needs every single member. And as you see kids running all around this campus, I just want to encourage you as much as you're able to take advantage of helping other parents and grandparents bring those kids up, whether it's volunteering through our children's ministries or, or whatever that might look like. But I want you to hear this morning your pastor's heart that I love you and that I am thinking about you even as I continue to press through this series because God's Word just has so much to say to parents. And it just needs to be said. 
So I want to thank you for, for being here for that, for, for acting in deference to your brothers and sisters, uh, and also for just recognizing that, that all of us, no matter who you are or what your background or whether or not you have children at home, you have a role in this task. And I'll tell you, it's a mighty, mighty task, and it's an important task. And it's important for this reason. We're going to start this morning with, with how do we do this with the small child? We opened up last week with the, the big picture, that the aim is that we would raise children up literally like arrows in the hands of a warrior, that we would build warriors. Well, today we're going to talk about what that looks like in the life of the small child from the time they're born up until the time that they become teens. Next week, we'll deal with the teenagers. I expect a few more seats to be filled, although I've only successfully raised one. So truthfully, I don't know how much wisdom I have to give you. I will try. I will really do my best. But, but you may ask, well, why is it important? Particularly as we look at the subject matter this morning, why is it important that we understand developmentally and otherwise the small child? What's so important about that? Well, I'm just going to put a picture up for you, a couple of them actually, and remind you that they're all over this place called Covenant. When we have family day, they're gathered in here with us. This is the future, not only of Covenant Church, but of the kingdom of God. And so it becomes incredibly important that you and I as followers of Jesus understand that and that we understand these children. Furthermore, there is a sense of wonder that kids this size bring into the life of a church that we wouldn't have otherwise. Don't you agree? Yeah, we just, we, there's a sense of wonder that they bring in, a sense of innocence, a sense of simplicity. And then we tend to, whether we realize it or not, reciprocate that same wonder back to them, especially if they live in our house, because our children, like us, are simultaneously created in the image and likeness of God, and they're fallen in sin. And sometimes in a kid, it's hard to know exactly which one of those you're looking at, isn't it? What are we looking at here? Are we looking at the innocence of a child? Or are we looking at sin? What? what What's going on here? And part of the reason that, that raising small children can be so puzzling to parents and grandparents and others is, is because we really don't know exactly what it was all supposed to be like. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, uh, up until the, from them up until the time of Jesus, we never saw perfect humanity. And so as we look at, at Adam and Eve, we see perfectly formed adults. But, but what we don't see, at least until we get to the time of Jesus, is what perfect development looks like. We know that this was to be a part of God's plan. As he pronounces the sin curse, he says to Eve, your, your pain will greatly increase in childbearing. So we know that pain wasn't supposed to be a part of it, but childbirth apparently was supposed to be a natural part of God's plan for reproduction and the population of the earth. His actual command to our first parents was be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so we know there was supposed to be reproduction. There was supposed to be uh, a development in pregnancy. There was supposed to be childbirth, and then there was supposed to be development. But, but because we don't have any real sense of what that looks like, and particularly even when we get to Jesus, we just see that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. We see that he was perfect in his development, but we really don't get a sense of, of, of the, the particulars of, of what that development looked like. And so now here we are. We got a bunch of little ones running around the house and they're running around the church and we're not quite sure what to make of all of this. Now, why is that important to recognize that? Because if we are building warriors, if our role as parents, grandparents, godparents, aunts, uncles, brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, if our role is to build these children in our midst into warriors, it is critical that we start early. 
I mean, from the minute you get them, from the first time you see them at the ho- in your home or at the hospital, to the time you bring them home and put them in the crib, to when you're teaching them how to walk and talk, and when you're teaching them uh, how to eat, and when you're changing their diaper, you've got to have this on your mind. And so the question then is, at this stage of development, what do our children need from us? And there are five things that the scriptures would prescribe that our children from birth up until the time they become teens are going to need from mom, dad, grandparents, whoever their guardians are. And the first one is, is fairly obvious. It's, it's protection. They need protection. M- most obvious of all, they need physical protection. You know, of all mammals, our infants are the most helpless. Makes sense, doesn't it? If you think about it for a minute, Anthropologists actually refer to human infants as the least competent of all mammals. Um, And that's true. That's true. Other mammals have to, upon birth, they've got to develop some skill sets very, very quickly. Uh, A newborn human baby, if left alone, even for a few hours, will likely perish. And, And so, and then this incompetence persists. Have you noticed that? For a long time. And it becomes more prominent. And we don't expect any more of that from our infants and from our babies because we know uh, what this is like. And even when they move beyond infancy, because infants become toddlers. And we call them toddlers because they, they toddle, which is a really cute word for they walk around like they're drunk. Because their heads are twice the size of the rest of their bodies. And so we... we We worry about that, and they're helpless. And if you think about that for a minute, any other mammal in the jungle or in the the Serengeti or wherever, if they're just kind of walking around drunk from tree branch to tree branch, you know what you call that? Prey. It would have been slaughtered a long time ago. And so obviously, our children need our physical protection. And this is why we do the things we do. It's why we have laws at the local all the way to the federal level about things like seat belts and, and booster seats. It's why there's that child-proof caps on our powerful medications. Although mom and dad, if, you'll, if you're like my house, sometimes my kids can get that mess off easier than I can. All right, but we do that because we want to protect our, chi- our kids. It's why when the child is endangered in any way or when the home environment becomes unhealthy, you have organizations like Child Protective Services. You have licensed social workers to make sure that child gets what it needs. And, and with all of this in view, it's just considered common sense. You don't even have to be a follower of Jesus to understand that the primary need of a small child is protection. But it's not just anthropology, sociology that teaches us this. Uh, There are multiple texts in the scriptures uh, that point this out. The first one is in Exodus chapter 2. There's a young lady who is living in the middle of, quite frankly, a genocide. The bloodthirsty Pharaoh, out of fear of the immigrant population living within the borders of Egypt, says, I want all the firstborn males of this entire nation to be killed. And there's a woman who's just had a baby. She names him Moses. And Exodus chapter 2 says that when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And then we see a corollary to this in Matthew chapter 2. In fact, Matthew points out that this story of Jesus is much akin to the story of Moses. He says this was the fulfillment, actually, of the prophecy, out of Egypt I have called my son. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child 
to destroy him. Your children, my children, particularly when they are very young, they need our protection. And Scripture indicates, these are just two texts of Scripture that indicate that need. But here's something else. Our children don't just need our physical protection. They need your mental protection, your emotional protection. They need your spiritual protection. This is why mom and dad, we screen movies before we let them see it, right? It's why you don't take, like there's certain things, like I'll go see a war movie, but I'm not taking my nine-year-old daughter. She's probably not quite ready for that yet, okay? And so you, you want to watch a movie like Hacksaw Ridge? Go for it. It's got a, an amazing message behind it. Probably don't need to be bringing your four-year-old in there to watch that, do you? There's certain things that are just not appropriate. In fact, they're so inappropriate that even in a movie theater, if you hear a toddler babbling and you're watching a movie like that, you're turning around like, what idiot brought a four-year-old into this? Because we know they need not just our physical, but our emotional, our, our mental protection. So we screen movies. We screen influences. Even sometimes families, you may be part of a wider family unit that, that has a lot of dysfunction in it, and there's someone who's, who's addicted to a substance, or there's someone who's behaving in a way that, that, that is just not going to be a good influence on that child. And it's not that you don't love the, the extended relative, but you love your child, and you recognize as a parent, I have a responsibility to make sure my child has the right influence. I'm not going to allow them to be in the middle of that dysfunction. What you're doing in that moment is you're protecting your child, all right? And discipline helps to protect them also. We're going to get more uh, to a more detailed discussion of discipline in just a moment. Uh, but I will tell you that in a, in a parking lot, for example, or near a busy street, when, when our kids were smaller, uh, Amy and I had instilled in them a very strong fear of disobeying us in certain environments, like a busy parking lot. We did that not because we hated our children or we wanted them to be afraid of us. We did it because we, we knew in those kind of environments, our kids needed to immediately be just be compelled to obey us because you don't want to ask a kid asking why while they continue walking out in front of a moving car. And so discipline sometimes comes about as a way of, of protecting your child. Now, here's another kind of protection they need. Your child needs the protection of a stable family. Now hear me well. Uh, this is not a statement of judgment on anybody who's been through the pain and the horror of a divorce. If you're a single mom and you're in front of me right now, you are the heroes of a church. I'm not trying to come down on you, but if you're in that environment or have ever been through that kind of circumstance, hopefully you love your brothers and sisters enough to nod with me when I warn them against that possibility for themselves. The United States of America contains 5% of the global population, 50% of the world's divorces, and 28% of our children in the wealthiest nation on the planet live in poverty. Much of that attributed to the breakdown of the nuclear family. So you know what your child needs more than anything else? If you want to protect them, doesn't, you know, protect them from moving cars, put them in booster seats, strap them in really good, wrap them in bubble wrap if you want to. But the most protection they need, the most important kind of protection is that they need to know that they're growing up in a stable home. That while mom and dad, if when mom and dad grow apart because of the children, it does nothing to help the children. It just doesn't. Every family starts on the following foundation. Look at Genesis chapter 2. It says, a man shall leave his father and mother so that's the first step. No mama's boys, no daddy's girls. Why? There's a new priority. 
That's tough, isn't it? But let me tell you, as the father of a nine-year-old, I was on the slopes just two days ago with my little adrenaline junkie. I love that little girl. She's amazing. But one day, if she gets, if she's one of the 95% of the American population that statistically will get married, I will likely walk her down the aisle and give her to another. I will no longer be the number one man in her life, dads, nor should I be. You get that? Because there's a new priority, there's a new family that's emerging, and at its core is a husband and a wife. That husband-wife tie is so important to the continued growth and development of your child. Your child needs that assurance. And the only way to assure it, and this is going to sound strange to some of you, but you really need to soak this in is if your children know that your relationship with your spouse is more important than your relationship with them. They need to know that. Not because you hate them, but because you love them. See, occasionally Mrs. Rainey and I will go out, we leave the kids at home, and they gripe and complain like we've left them in a third world country without any food. But you know what happens? They get over it. They get over it. And they see a stout marriage. And they kind of understand in the middle of that experience, mom and dad aren't going anywhere. Mom and dad form a tight bond. Mom and dad's relationship is preeminent, not because we don't love you, but because we do. I don't know how many of you were able to watch the eulogy in December of our nation's 41st president. George Herbert Walker Bush was laid to rest. And before flying him uh, down to Houston to, to lay him to rest, our nation mourned together at the National Cathedral. And the man to eulogize him was our 43rd president, George W. Bush. You know, it takes a lot of courage and a lot of guts not only to eulogize your father in front of an international television audience and all of those dignitaries that were gathered at the National Cathedral that day. Uh, it, it takes a lot for a man who's literally been the most powerful man in the world to be okay with losing his composure in the middle of all those folks as he mourned the loss of his father and he said something that truthfully, there's not a dad in this room that we wouldn't love to hear our kids say this one day at our funeral. Dad, you were the best father that a son could ever have. I don't know if you saw that or not, but I was moved to tears. And you know how so much of that, what, what so much of it was based in? It may surprise you. President Bush said nothing during that 20-some-odd minute eulogy, nothing about filling the calendar with all kinds of activities or getting him in the right preschool or matching monogrammed shirts at Christmas or the right play dates with the right kids. You know what he talked about repeatedly? the absolute unconditional love that his father had for his mother. I'm telling you, there's nothing that will protect your kids better than for you to prioritize, mom and dad, that relationship. Protect them physically as a parent. Also, you need to make sure you're protecting them emotionally, spiritually, and otherwise. And then within that bubble of protection, you're going to provide instruction. That's what brings us to Ephesians chapter 6. And we see these words from the Apostle Paul. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And so we get here kind of a broad summary of the fulcrum of what it looks like to effectively parent a small child. And the first is, this all begins with obedience. Children need to obey their parents. There was a British uh, social observer 
who visited the United States for many months, and as he got back to the British Isles, he was writing some reflections on, on the things that he observed. And, and one of the things that he observed was he was so impressed, and these are his words, at how well American parents obey their children. I mean, those kids are at the center of everything, right? They're, they're about, it's all about the kids. It's all about what the kids want, what makes the kids happy, what makes the kids feel fulfilled. It's, there, there they are. That's instruction. Permissive parenting is one of the issues that we've got to deal with. It's characterized by low expectations on the one hand and high response on the other. In fact, I watched a child psychologist explain this on video a few weeks ago. It was interesting. Uh, she actually rightly pointed out that, that when a child throws a fit, for example, or is disobedient, that that, you, that child needs to know that you understand them and that you're there. Uh, but she said, okay, let, let's give an example. Like your child wants something in the store and you say no. Now, now my children, my children never did this, Okay. I, I bet yours never did either, but you might have a neighbor or maybe that this extended family member and their kid did this. So this is for them, okay? They throw a fit and they literally throw themselves in the middle of the aisle and they just start screaming. And this psychologist said, you need to, you need to get down at eye level with them and you need to speak to them because that lets them know, number one, that you hear them. Well, so can everybody else in the zip code that you're in at that moment. And it lets them know, number two, that, that the way you're expressing yourself, it models for them. Well, I agree. You should model for your child appropriate behavior. But this lady was saying, you just, when the child wants the cookie and you say no and they throw a fit, you get down in the floor with them and you get at eye level with them and you just repeat, you want the cookie. You want the cookie. You want the cookie. You want the cookie. That was the appropriate thing according to this particular uh, mental health professional. Here's the thing. Uh, there's a 2014 study that suggests that style triples the chance of you raising an impulsive child. There's a 2007 study that concluded with the following words, children never learn to control their own behavior and they always expect to get their way. See, here's the truth of the matter, folks. God ordained sovereignly that this world would be set up on spheres of authority, okay? Uh, exhibit A, you leave this place this afternoon and you go barreling down German Street in Shepherdstown at 70 miles an hour, you're going to encounter one of those spheres of authority, okay? A couple of them were here this morning in front of me just nodding, going, yep, bring it, bring it. We need some income in this city and we'll get a lot of it if you go 70 miles an hour uh, down German Street. You're going to encounter that kind of authority in the world. And God has ordained that mom and dad be the first expression of authority in their child's life. That's not all you are, but you are also not less than that. And mom and dad, grandparents, anybody in the sound of my voice raising kids that are growing up in your home right now, it, God has granted you that authority. And if that authority is not asserted, few other spheres of authority will be respected. So if you, the sum total of what you're doing is getting on ground level and going, you, you want the cookie. You want the cookie. Yeah, that's going to turn into, in about 15 years, you looking at your adult child while he's got handcuffs on going, you robbed a liquor store. You robbed a liquor store. Impulsivity, lack of discipline, they all create this kind of environment. They, they have to have 
instruction. Let me give you some encouragement this morning, especially if you're young parents with very young kids. God granted you authority over that child. Use it. And use it because you love your child. Because you love your child. Now, now there's another side of this as well. Paul goes on, after telling children to obey, he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Okay? So there's permissive parenting on the, on the one hand, but the other extreme, and we tend to be a society that focuses on extremes, the other extreme is authoritarian parenting. Authoritarian parenting. Okay? So permissive parenting is low accountability, high response. Authoritarian parenting is exact opposite. It's high accountability, low response. Your kid in that paradigm knows you're in charge, but they never see you engaged and they really don't think you care. And if you're sitting there with, with some shock in, in your soul right now, because I just said, I can't believe it. It really doesn't matter. If your child doesn't feel it, if your child doesn't sense it, it's your responsibility, mom and dad, to make sure they understand that all of this is based on love. An authoritarian parent doesn't come across that way. And oftentimes, can we just be honest? It's because there's not a lot of genuine love there. Maybe you think your child is there to make you look good, and so you exert severe punishment because they made you look bad. I don't know what, the, what the, the motivation is for that, but I can tell you this. You must bring your child up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And you can't do that if you adopt an authoritarian model on the one hand or a permissive one on the other. Instead, you need to provide protection physically, spiritually, emotionally, and then you need to provide instruction within that context. And then that instruction also includes something else. It includes discipline. Discipline. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. You shall teach them. These statutes, God says, that I am giving you. You teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Mom and dad, grandparents, your entire life should be characterized by what it is that you want to impart to the next generation. That, that's what God is teaching us here through the words of Moses in Deuteronomy. That's what the New Testament teaches us with Paul's corollary text in, in Ephesians chapter 6. See, we think of discipline and we, we think automatically of punishment or some reaction that we have to something bad. We need to widen our perspective a bit here. Uh, discipline is never less than punishment or reaction to bad behavior, but it's always more than those two things. And it includes moral and spiritual structure. Your children need structure to be consistent. Spiritual structure, physical structure. Uh, my wife, as, as we speak, is on her way to South Carolina. Uh, she's gone down there for a couple of weeks to take care of her parents uh, and just, just to help manage some things as they are starting to get older. And, and so she's, she's left me with one of the kids. Now, anytime we split up as a family like that, and one of the kids stays with me, Mrs. Rainey always has a conversation with me, and it usually involves her doing this, right? Like, listen to me, right? I don't think you're listening. You need to listen to me. And, and it usually includes something like, make sure they change clothes at least once a day. Like, hey, hey, Rainey, right? If they're wearing the same shirt they wore yesterday, send them upstairs to change shirts. If the shirt is sticking to them, tell them to take a shower, okay? Let's, let's make sure. Oh, don't look at me like that. You know your kids go around nasty too. If they could get away with it. 
Mrs. Randy just wants to make sure they don't, right? Why don't you? Because she recognizes, and I do too. It's just I'm not the one that's all that vigilant all the time until she leaves the house, and then I, I have to become vigilant. Our children need structure. They need to go to bed at a certain time. They need to get up at a certain time. They need to brush their teeth. They need to wash their hair. They need to comb their hair. They need to put on different clothes than the stinky ones they had on yesterday. Well, all that translates into the spiritual realm as well. They need prayer. You need to pray with your kids all the time on a regular basis. And, and, it's, and I know sometimes it's tiring. I am just like the average slob husband sometimes. And I get home, especially if it's been a long 13, 14 hour day, and I just kind of crash on the couch and I'm just vegging in front of the television because I don't have the brain bandwidth to really do anything else. And my smaller kids will come up, and give me a big hug and say, night, night, daddy. And then they will say, are you coming upstairs? And what that means is, are you praying with us tonight? And I can tell you, Every single time I am just obedient to God and go do this thing with my kids, it's, it's just an amazing thing. It's a lift for me spiritually. It, sometimes it's pretty funny. I mean, you never know what's going to come out of their mouth when they're talking to Jesus, honestly. Like we were several years ago when, when Seth was like eight, uh, he had a good, good friend that was part of a Muslim family that we were close friends with, and we were, uh, we were observing an iftar dinner with them, which is the nightly breaking of the fast during the holy month of Ramadan, and so uh, just spending some time with some friends, and as we went back home, he, he was just asking me questions. His buddy Asat, for example, there were certain kinds of foods that, that were not present, okay? So there's no pork on the table, there's certain kinds of meat that's, that's just not appropriate for them because of what their religious faith teaches them, and we were talking about what it means to, to respect your neighbor that believes differently than you, but then, of course, that led to other questions like, well, why can a sot not eat bacon, but it's okay for us to eat bacon? And so I explained all that to him. Now, it was hard to explain that to an eight-year-old. I could have done it to a seminary class in my sleep, but doing it to an eight-year-old, that's a little difficult. Uh, new covenant, basically, Jesus set us free from the demands of the law. So later that night, we're, I'm at his bedside, and he prays, Oh, Lord, thank you for dying on the cross because I love bacon so much. <laughs> and I said, not really the point, but you are your father's son. Okay? So you just never know. I mean, you need to walk into that environment with your kid. You need to have those experiences with your kid. Read the Bible stories with your kids, especially when they're little. Do voices when you do it, right? When God's speaking, do God, right? Just do it. Now, I'm telling you, the Old Testament was written for little boys. There is bloodshed and mayhem, and just it's just amazing, right? My two boys, when they were smaller, they were like, read David and Goliath. Get to the part where he cuts his head off, Daddy. Like, you just never know. You're going to have some fun. They're going to learn in the middle of all that, but they need that spiritual structure and they need that from you. Let me tell you why that is. Because if you look at this little ball right here, if you bring your children to church once a week, and some of you don't even do that, and I'll get to that in a minute, this is the level of influence that we have on your child right here, okay? That's it. That's what we put in their bucket. That's what we invest in them. Once they get to be a teen and you bring them to youth on Wednesday night, you might add another hour. So we get that. You see this right here? This is you. This is the influence you have on your child for good or for ill. You're going to have to be the one that disciples your kid. Your church family isn't here to do that work for you. We've got your back and we should. But this is your responsibility. And they need that kind of instruction 
and discipline. They also need reformative discipline. When they step out of line, somebody's got to pull them back in line. It's interesting that Martin Luther, the great reformer, early in his ministry claimed that the teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ should never be coupled with the teaching of the Old Testament law. 500 years ago, a guy was teaching early in his ministry that people should unhitch the Old Testament from their faith. Heard anybody do that lately? Yeah, you might want to turn them off. Later on, Luther realized, no, the law actually has a place. It's not that we want to burden people with the law or that we load people down with a bunch of rules of do's and don'ts, but it is the law that exposes our need for the gospel. We need the law. We need the Old Testament because it acts like a mirror, okay? I can't do anything with, with the, the law that's going to save my soul. It's like looking in a mirror and discovering that there's something in my teeth. I have never, once I've discovered it, taken the mirror off the wall and picked my teeth with the mirror. Never done that. That mirror's not there for that. There's, some, there's another instrument that can get that stuff out of my teeth. The mirror's there to do what? Expose what's going on with me. And that's the purpose of the law, which is why later in his ministry, Luther would come around and he would begin to teach the law. Now, as you look at the history of the church, you think, well, what would have motivated him to pull that 180? What was he doing? Well, he was younger and now he's matured in the faith. Well, he was facing a Catholic church that was tyrannical and telling people that it was faith plus works and grace plus merit and Jesus plus the saints and all of these different things. And he was just trying to strip it down. And now he realized maybe he stripped away too much. I would submit to you that there's another reason that Martin Luther pulled a 180. It's because he had children. He had a son and he very quickly realized the utility of teaching the Old Testament. The first line of Luther's catechism for children Hear ye children and learn the law of God, thou shalt not. That's something we've got to instill. Small children need boundaries. They need it sometimes for their physical protection. If they're about to stick a screwdriver in, a, in an outlet, you, you, what they don't need in that moment when they're that small is a lecture from you about metal conduction and rapidly moving electrons. They just simply need a because I said so. Young parents, hear me. Because I said so is sufficient when that child is younger. They need it because sometimes they're going to step out of line. They need to be brought back in line. Now, the question is, how do you do that? How do you do reformative discipline? And that's where these hotly debated issues come up. What is appropriate punishment? Uh, I'm sure you're aware that there's some debate out there. Should we put them in timeout? Should we take away a toy? Should we take away electronics? And then, of course, the, the big hot topic right now is should we or should we not spank? Now, there's a couple of different groups on that front. The first group would say, well, it's never appropriate to spank a child. Corporal punishment is always wrong and inappropriate. And I would simply point you to the following text, which says, whoever spares the rod hates his son. Read all the psychology and sociology you want. You're going to have to contend with the word of the Lord at the end of the day. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. Now, a couple things you need to know about this text. The rod is used here as a metaphor. So it's not merely talking about corporal punishment and discipline. It's talking about discipline as a whole. So there are some of you who don't think this is ever appropriate, and you're going to have to, you're going to, have to wrestle with what God's Word actually says here. And then some of you who may think spanking is the only appropriate punishment. And to you, I would say, there's a lot more here okay, than just 
corporal punishment. There is not less than corporal punishment here, but there is far more. And if your school of thought is, well, this is, this is just the way, well, this way my daddy did it. It's the way his daddy did it with him. It's the way to, what you're going to do if you're not careful is you're not going to consider the uniqueness of your own child and you're going to discipline them in a way that will not push them where they need to go, but will instead truncate their soul because you're not respecting who they are and what actually works. Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child in the way he should go. Notice, in the way he should go. Literally, you could translate this, train up a child in the way he is bent. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. So, so coupled with this idea that, yes, we should use corrective and sometimes even corporal discipline on our children is the idea that we have to know our kids in order to know what is appropriate and what is not. Okay. You, you don't make your child conform to your preferred method of discipline. That's not why your child exists. Don't do that. Even through punishment, you can guide that child in a way that he or she will best respond because our kids are all different. They're all different. All three of mine, were those were three separate adventures in learning what did not work. Can you testify to that, mom and dad? Three separate adventures and learning what did work. You do this out of love for the child, out of a desire to see the child move ahead, which is, means rule number one, you don't do this when you're angry. You don't do it when you're angry. Because whatever you do, if you do it out of anger, it's abuse. See, we, we like to make up a list of rules. like, Well, corporal punishment is abuse. Not always. Well, a timeout's not abuse. It might be. It depends on your motivation. It depends on your objective. What is it that you're trying to accomplish here? Are you just relieving pent-up frustrations on this weaker vessel that's living in your home that you have responsibility to raise and develop to the greater glory of God? Or are you channeling your energy, including the restorative and corrective discipline, to get that child from A to B, as the Scriptures would command you as a parent, to use your authority to do? That's the idea behind restorative and, and corrective discipline. Do it in the way that he is bent. I think, I think it's God's design sometimes that our children are all different because this, it forces parents to learn about your child. Each of your children needs formative structure and then they need boundaries. They, because they are fallen in sin, are going to test those boundaries, which means it's your responsibility as a parent to reinforce and enforce those boundaries to help them get where God wants to go. Now, you can do all of that and still miss it with your small child. Because if you're, if you're protecting them with the right environment, and you're providing them instruction, and, and the guardrails of discipline so that they don't go off the rails in life, there's still a culture that needs to exist in the middle of that for your child to actually flourish and become everything that God intended him or her to be. And it's a culture of acceptance. That's going to take us to 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul in context is actually talking about the superiority of the way of love and how within that context, you, you need to mature spiritually and not be a child anymore. You need to be an adult now spiritually. You need to be a man. But it's within that that he, he actually says something rather obvious. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I, I gave up childish ways. Well, well, here's the other side of that statement. If you're not a man, you're a child. 
Right. If you're not a woman, you're a child. Paul is making this observation to demonstrate how we come to maturity in the way of love. But what he's basically saying is that children are different than adults. They're not supposed to be adults. I mean, that ought to seem obvious enough to us. But there's a recurring tension in the West on this front. In fact, if you go back to to Victorian England, you discover that children were basically expected to be miniature adults. The only thing different was their clothes were smaller. Uh, But they came into the room, they ate, they, you know, they used the right fork at the meal. They said, please, and yes, ma'am, and thank you, and all those things that we should, obviously, teach our children. Uh, If you had means in this phase of history in England, you didn't even, you hardly ever saw your kids. You paid somebody else to raise them. But when you did see them, they were to be seen and not, yeah. And if they were heard, you know what they were supposed to sound like? Like an adult. We have learned the hard way in the West that children don't play that part very well, do they? They don't. Nor should they. That should not be an expectation that you put on your two-year-old, on your six-year-old. You you can't do that. They are going to act like children, which means, mom and dad, just get used to this, they are going to speak without a filter at the most inopportune times. There's no telling what our Kidman volunteers have heard about some of you. But I know what they've heard about me and Mrs. Rainey. Because I hear that through Lisa. Oh, we heard this from this kid or from that kid. We know... We know what's going on in your house now. And there's this big joke. There's there's a lot of innocence there. And then they're going to ask some really hard, deep questions that that you're not going to know how to answer because you really only know the adult version of the answer. Like, like I've been teaching in academic environments for over 15 years now, so it's nothing for me to get up in front of 100 graduate students at a seminary and wax philosophical for like 90 minutes about theodicy and the problem of evil. But when my nine-year-old daughter asks me about the problem of evil, I have no idea how to answer the question. You ever notice that? How do you, how do you speak nine-year-old and answer that question? That's good for, that's good for us, parents. It really is. That brings us down to a level. Just recognizing that our children are not adults. They're children. Their minds aren't even developed to the point that they think like us now. You can tell a child, for example, that A is a fact and B is a fact and, and C is a fact. And they, they may accept all of that as true for you, but then they're going to look back at you and go, Mom, Dad, what's a fact? And then they're going to blink repeatedly while you try to explain yourself, mumbling over and over and over. There's a, and there's a part of this pastor that doesn't wonder if that's sometimes why we don't want them around. At the very moments when we actually should want them around. Is, is that the reason? Every fifth Sunday here, we hold Family Sunday. We shut down the youth department, shut down kid men, we bring everybody in. And we do that for a couple of reasons. And all the church growth experts have told me, Pastor, you should never, ever do that. It's going to mean more empty seats. And I have to remind them that we're not just about filling the seats. We're about growing disciples, which means occasionally the family needs to come together. The church is not a shopping mall where the old people go to JCPenney and mom goes to Lord and Taylor and dad looks at the Kia out in the middle of the the mall and the little girl goes to Justice and the boys go to GameStop. That's not the church. Church is family. And occasionally, while everybody kind of has their room, we got to come together around the dinner table. 
That's what we do. But those tend to be lower attended Sundays for us. And I knew they would be, so I'm not particularly upset about it. But, but we do it because we know that that's important to emphasize. Secondarily, it's important because our children, even our small ones, need to know what this atmosphere looks like. Otherwise, they'll never come into one when they become adults. And so we teach them through that. Why is it lower attended during a moment like that? Well, it may be because we're just so accustomed to this environment where the minute we get to church, everybody goes to their rooms. That's not what church is supposed to be. It's also not supposed to be completely void of wiggling and giggling and talking. And There's going to be some of that because children are not going to act like adults. They, they, we intuitively know they need to learn to listen, but because they're children, they won't always listen. Sometimes they're going to fiddle around on a magnadoodle. Sometimes they're going to use a tablet. Sometimes, and then many times they're listening even when we don't know they're listening, which is why sometimes you don't think they're listening, but then you get a question about, a, about the Trinity in the car ride home. And you're stumbling again, and you wonder. It's, a, it's uncomfortable. It's messy. It's exactly what God desires for your child and for you as a parent, that we would raise them in this way. In the church and in the family, we need to develop a culture that says that's okay. It's okay. Because we cherish children as children. Because we recognize that they bring a simplicity and an innocence into our lives. In fact, evolutionary philosophers have a hard time with kids. They have admitted that children, when it comes to children, they are, it is very difficult to convince them that there is no God. Very difficult. Evolutionary philosophers actually have a term for this. They call it design prejudice. It's built into a child because a small child looks at the world and they very quickly and very simply and very innocently conclude, somebody made this. This did not happen by accident. Some, somebody had to make this. And so a child looks at the world like that. That thought must mature. It must grow, but it must never be eliminated. Even as an adult, let them remember when they were encouraged by us through something akin to that child's catechism that says, little child, who made you? To which they will answer, God made me. They need an atmosphere of acceptance where they are loved and where they know that this, in addition to my mom and dad and my grandparents, this is my family, this is home. You know why they need all of that? Because of this last and greatest need of all. Your children and mine need the gospel. Because ultimately we can provide protection and instruction and discipline and acceptance. But we do all of that so that they will know the following. Jesus said in Matthew 19, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Now there's a corollary text as well, one chapter earlier, that says this. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Are you awake yet? Here's the warning when it comes to children. Do not prohibit them. Nothing is more important than this. So here's the question, mom and dad. Are you living and raising your child in such a way that they understand that this is the most important thing? 
or, or his church and, and relationship with Jesus, is that just another box for you to check? I, I have been on multiple occasions in, in an office environment, a, a, in a church environment, and some parent has drugged their seven or eight year old kid in there and sat him down in front of me and told me they're ready for baptism when they are obviously not. I, multiple times. I mean, literally, I look at the kid and they look at me and go, I, I don't even know why I'm here. They told me to come. They told me it's time to do this. Okay. Well, what do you know about Jesus? Uh, not much. Um, I mean, again, speaking with no filter. So we got raw honesty. And I have to look at mom or look at dad, grandparents, guardians, and say, listen, I, I'm thrilled that you, you want your child to know Jesus. They're asking questions. That's a good thing. Let's, let's be careful here because if your child really is converted, the lack of baptism is not going to keep them out of the kingdom of heaven. But conversely, if, if this is not a real conversion, if they haven't really given their lives to Jesus and they're just here because you want them to be here and we confirm that by baptizing them, we may actually inoculate them and they never catch the real thing. So, so let's be careful. You know how many mad parents I've dealt with over the years when I tell them that? I just, look, I love your kid. I care about their soul. I don't want this to be something that, that damages them for eternity. I mean, I don't want you mad at me either, but I certainly don't want your kid going to hell. So here we are, and this is what we're doing. And you just keep pushing and keep pushing. Most of the time, that kind of, of attitude is reflective of a check-the-box mentality. We just want to get them to Jesus, which means get them to just admit they believe he died and rose again, get them to admit that in a tank and baptize them, put their name on a church roll. Now we got that box checked. We're good. We can just move on. Okay. Jesus is not a box to be checked. He is your whole life, or he is nothing. Are you teaching that to your children? Do your actions in the home and outside of the home communicate that to your children? I've said this before. Do you pray with your children? Do you talk regularly with your children about Jesus? Does your calendar reflect? the value of your relationship with Jesus. Now, here's where I'm going to get in trouble because I know I'm cutting against the grain of culture here. When gathering with the people of God conflicts with some other activity on Sunday, which one wins out most of the time? Notice I didn't say all the time. So most of the time. Okay? This is another one of those pendulum swing things where we have a hard time finding the balance. I grew up in a very almost legalistic environment with Sunday morning, church on Sunday night, church on Wednesday night, pastors watching, washing the windows on Thursday. We filled our seats and we watched him do it, right? I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about taking a family vacation occasionally. I'm talking about the, the, the extended periods of time where you do not expose your children to the corporate worship of God. And there are multiple things that, that clamor for our attention now on the Lord's day. And I'm going to mention one of them. It's probably going to get me in a little bit of trouble, but just remember that I love you. Athletics has become a God in this culture, an absolute God. We sacrifice so much to athletics. And, and listen, I don't, I don't hate it. I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm a little teary-eyed because after tonight, football season's over, and it's going to be seven months before I get to see another snap. I love the game, but the game is not more important than Jesus. The game is not more important than the gathering together of his people to worship Jesus. 
Let me just give you some facts about your son or daughter. If they play football, if they play basketball, if they're in gymnastics, if they play soccer, if they're in martial arts, if they're doing anything and those activities occur on Sunday and those things consistently went out, you know what? What are you teaching your kids? What, what are you teaching them? Yeah. There is a 0.02% chance if your child is participating in any of that, that they're going to make it to the NFL, the NBA, or to the Olympics. There is a 100% chance your child will stand before Jesus. Does your calendar communicate to your kid, Jesus is important, but not nearly as important as playing ball? What's the choice that you make? Y'all still okay? You still my friends? I love you. I love your children. I care about their souls. I care about the next generation. I care about the extent of the kingdom. I am absolutely convinced because I've studied the scriptures quite extensively that the local church is the only path to kingdom advance and there ain't no plan B. And my soul is troubled for the future of the church in the West. My soul is troubled for your children and the future of their souls, which is why I say these things. What does your calendar say? What does your lifestyle say? The choices that you make, do they communicate to your child that the most important thing they need is the gospel? Now, why is that ultimately important? Well, it's because of who your child is. They're created in the image and likeness of God, but brothers and sisters, they are also fallen in sin. Scripture bears this out with abundant clarity that there is something wrong. There is something bad. There's something corrupt, and it's not in the environment or in the outside influences. There's something in your child that can only be cured by the blood of Jesus. There's something in the child that needs something to transform the child. Horace Bushnell was a liberal theologian of the last century. Uh, being of the, the philosophical school of thought that he was, when, when you look at Scripture like you would look at any other piece of literature, when you assume as a, re, as a result the way not only that it should be interpreted, but viewed as a whole, as, as just some piece of, of literature that you can use higher critical methods to dissect, much like some organism in a petri dish well when you view scripture that way it becomes very easy to remove things from its content that you find unpleasant to you like for example original sin or the need for repentance or blood atonement horace bushnell by the time his theological method had matured had, had pretty much jettisoned all of that and he had developed a school of thought for the church that he called christian nurture with reference to the development of the child, that our children simply need to be nurtured. They simply need to be told from birth that they are children of God, and they need to be nurtured in such a way, and I quote Bushnell, so that he or she never knows of a time when they were not a Christian. Do you know what you call someone who never knows of a time when they were not a Christian? Not a Christian. Does that sound harsh? Brothers and sisters, there is a reason that we use certain language here. There's a reason we still sing songs like Amazing Grace here at Covenant. There's a reason that we use words like before and after when we speak of conversion. There's a reason that here at Covenant we still insist on invoking the language of what it means to be born again. It is because the gospel requires it. It requires it. For that matter, there is a reason that here at Covenant we keep water far away from babies. There is a reason that once a month when we come together around the Lord's Supper that I beg those of you who have unconverted children to keep them from the table. 
It's because we love your child and we care about their soul. So are you parenting in a way that makes it clear to your son and daughter that nothing is more important than a transformative, growing relationship with Jesus as his word defines it? Because at the end of the day, your child doesn't need self-esteem, an education, the right preschool, nearly as much as he or she needs a new heart given to him or her by the death and the resurrection of Jesus through the power of the convicting Holy Spirit. And so here, here's my goal. We talk about teenagers next week, and we're not doing youth at 9 o'clock. It'll be fun to have all the teens in here with us as, we, as the teens converse because you're starting to become adult at this point, and you're starting to get a mind of your own, and that's natural, and that's, that's a good thing, mom and dad. So if you're parenting teens, be here next week with your teen. You guys are going to have a lot to talk about on your way home. But here's what I want to see by the time they get there. If you've got small children, I don't want them to never know a time when they were not a Christian. I don't want them to never know a time when they did not love Jesus. But I do want this for them. I want them to never know a time when they were not completely surrounded by people who did. So again, what are we doing? to provide them that protection, to provide them that instruction, to provide them that discipline so that we can give our children to Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, you're good to us, and we thank you for your grace. Uh, even now, so many of us are thinking of our own parents. And while we could critique all day long, so many of them, like my own, did so much more right than they did wrong, and we thank you for their example, and, the, and, and for that example being the reason that many of us are here even today. Father, would you help us to replicate that? Would you help us to repent of sins that may have been in, in their parenting that, that doesn't need to be in ours, but that might be replicated if we don't pay attention to you? Would you help us to not forbid these children to come to you? Would you, Father, empower us to raise these young ones up so that by the time they reach their teen years, they know Jesus, they love Jesus, and they recognize that they're surrounded in an atmosphere that accepts them as they are that pushes them forward to what God intends them to be. And may the next generation bring you more glory than the last one because of our obedience to you. I ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at nine o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.